We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss updates from across the battlefront, speaking to Telegraph correspondent Nicholas Smith, who's on the ground in Donbass, and Dom Nichols, who's been travelling with the British Defence Secretary in Oslo, Norway. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 15th of June, day 112. And today I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, Telegraph Correspondent Nicola Smith, and our Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols. But before we get into our conversation with Nicola, here's a few key updates from Ukraine. The industrial city of Severodonetsk is under intense bombardment as Russia focuses its offensive on the Donbass region in an effort to secure a swathe of eastern and southern Ukraine. Moscow's forces have intensified efforts to cut off beleaguered Ukrainian troops remaining in the city and have said that they will open a corridor to allow civilians to flee the besieged factory. The Russian Ministry of Defense has claimed its forces have destroyed a depot containing NATO-supplied arms in western Ukraine. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said further artillery support for Ukraine will be discussed by members today, while Russia indicated it would be willing to consider a UK appeal over the fate of two Britons sentenced to death. And finally, according to an audio clip posted on Tuesday by Ukrainian authorities, Russia discussed sending Ukrainian prisoners of war into minefields to clear explosives in Mariupol and other recently captured towns. Nicola, thank you so much for your time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where you are and what you've been seeing the last few days? Hi, uh, can you hear me okay? I'm just sitting by the side of the road and we're just sitting next to the sign that says, Welcome to Donetsk. So uh, here we go. And there's a lot lot of lorries going past us just now. Um, I don't know, you might be able to hear that in the background, but it seems that there's supply trucks going down, down towards the east. There's a lot of soldiers um, on the roads as well, heading towards the front. And we're going to a town called Pokorovsk, which is close to Kramatorsk and uh, closer to um, the front lines in Luhansk and Donetsk. And we are going to, to just speak to people there about this 
the problem that Ukraine is having just now with the huge levels of attrition, they're losing a lot of soldiers. Uh, officials are now saying up to 200 soldiers a day. And we are going to just speak to hopefully um, military uh, officials down there and also go to hospitals, speak to people who've come back from the front lines. So we, we started out in Lviv uh, in the west and we've been working our way gradually eastwards and we've, we spent some time in Kiev, which I talked about last week and, and we also went to Dnipro. Um, so we're just progressively going closer to where the battles are and just trying to find out as much information as possible. And Nicola, when you talk to um, the soldiers, what's their morale like? What kind of things are they telling you? Well, I know that there were several reports last week saying that morale was low, but we just haven't found that. Anyone that we've spoken to has been positive. Obviously, it's horrific for for Ukraine and and it's just a horrible thought, you know, having to go into battle and and people are, are very much aware of of um, just the, the terrible conditions that, that they're going to face. But we spoke to one soldier yesterday in the hospital who survived a shelling. He was in Luhansk, so he, he was on the front line and he said that the shelling was constant, that from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. the Russians were throwing everything that they could at the Ukrainians and they could barely come out of their, their bunkers. And... He said, though, that, that morale was still high, that they're defending their country. Everyone keeps saying, this is our country, this is a defensive war for us. We, we're just trying to push the Russians out of our homeland. So uh, we haven't detected any sense that morale is low. What people are, keep saying, though, and he said this, you know, from, from soldiers to government, senior government officials, is that we need artillery, we need equipment, we'll... We'll do this battle, we'll fight this battle, but we need support. We need support from the West. Um, we need uh, everything that you can give us to push the Russians back because they're, 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 so, um, they're just so outmatched when it comes to artillery. We interviewed Mikhailo uh, Podolyak, who is one of President Zelensky's senior advisors, and we interviewed him last week. And... He said that tens of thousands of soldiers could die if they don't get the equipment that they need. Uh, he was grateful for, for the UK sending MLRS systems, but said, we, we don't need three, we need, we need 300. Um, they need anti-aircraft weapons. Um, they need drones. Uh, and it's just not coming. And, and people are just questioning why they're, are these delays? They're, they're questioning why they're not getting more backup from the West when, you know, so many young men are dying every day. And I think if you're talking about morale, I, I, I think the sense here is that people are just despairing that they're not getting the help that they need. And we went yesterday to the funeral of, of a soldier. He was 46. He, he died a week ago. And it, it was just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking to hear a mother wailing for her son, you know, crying over his coffin. And we went to the village where, where he grew up. The entire village turned out, um, if you were just sobbing. So, so when you're 
talking about 200, up to 200 soldiers are dying every day. It's, you know, that scene is being replicated all around Ukraine. Um, you know, you've got more heartbroken families and they just keep saying, please send us, please send us the weapons. Moving on to talk a little bit about your other reporting. Um, you've written a piece um, titled Inside the Donbass Chemical Plant, where the families are sheltering. This is in uh, this is the Azot fa- fa- factory in Severodonetsk, uh, so scene of quite heavy fighting. Um, the Azot factory has come under the scope. We, we've heard a lot about it because it's where the civilians are hiding. Can you tell us about what people told you about the, the conditions and, the, and their life in this plant? Sure. We, we met a family. We met a, a man and his elderly mother and mother-in-law on a train in Dnipro. Uh, they started out in Pokrovsk where we are going just now, so it was an evacuation train. And we just we, were, we went on board just to speak to people about what they had been fleeing. And it turned out that he had been, well, the three of them had been sheltering in the Azot chemical plant for about two months. And a lot of civilians, hundreds of civilians went there with their families. It was mainly workers at the plant and their families went there to shelter because there were old Soviet-era bunkers that were safe. Uh, There was, the bunkers were created in strategic locations around the country and reinforced so that people could shelter in in times of crisis. And so there were several of these shelters there. They, They were spent most of their time underground. He said that they were relatively comfortable it wasn't home but they did have bathrooms they had running water and they also had humanitarian aid coming in so they they did have food Uh, but he he said it started to get quite frightening when ukrainian soldiers were fighting with the russians and when they they were within the premises of this factory then obviously there there were shells coming in 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 response and he said that he and his mother and mother-in-law took the opportunity last week to evacuate with the military and, and they got out. But when he left, he said there were still hundreds of people there. And those people are believed to still be trapped. I think the latest estimates we have are about 500 civilians, including about 40 children, who are in that plant. It's been struck directly by the Russians. And one of the the frightening things about it is that it's not just a question of artillery fire. It's also a question of the very dangerous chemicals that could leak and, and could kill people as well. He said that he was part of an emergency response team who were reacting to any damage to containers. He had to, on one occasion, put on protective gear and gas masks and go and plug holes in a tank full of ammonia gas. So huge risk to the civilians who are there now. The Russians have destroyed the three bridges around Severodonetsk, so it's much, much harder to evacuate people and it's also much harder to get humanitarian aid in. So you can only imagine the fear that people are living in and also the terrible conditions that, that they, they'll have to endure now. Absolutely. Well, I'm conscious as well that you don't have much time with us, and I'm sure Francis and Dom have some questions as well. So I'd just ask you, um, can you talk as well about the story you and Ilya Novikov wrote um, from Erpin, so back when you were travelling traveling towards Donbass, and you met a group of uh, fathers who banded together from the, uh, from the suburb to defend their country. Um, who were they, and um, what did they tell you? 
Well, we went to Irpin, which was the. Uh, it's a pre- previously before the war. It seemed to be a, an idyllic commuter town on the outskirts of Lviv. I'm sorry, Kiev. There were a lot of families there, people commuting into work. There were. It seemed like a very pleasant place to live, but it was one of the towns that the, that was the worst hit when the invasion started, and the Russians went there and shelled buildings. They, you know, they did so many terrible things that that have been widely reported on. And when the invasion started, a lot of neighbours just banded together. They they grabbed whatever weapons they could find and rifles, hunting rifles, they found guns somewhere, and they just started to defend their homes and their families. And so we went to meet one of these groups, and they they were all from the same community. They had found some kind of mismatched uniforms, and, and they, they made a little badge for themselves called the Hedgehogs. And so they were the Hedgehog unit, and they fought the Russians. They, they were just... You know, ordinary fathers, um, family men. One was a truck driver. One had a furniture business. One was a salesman, and they just came together and they defended their streets. They set up a, a, bar- a barricade. They tried to shoot at the Russians. They tried to protect their families, to get their wives and kids out. Um, a lot of well, several of, of them are now um, their homes have been destroyed, and they're they're still working together, patrolling, um, just kind of taking on some kind of security role, even though it's, it's peaceful there now. But they're also training. They're, they're training with foreign trainers. Someone we met uh, the other week is a British trainer, and he's involved in helping them to just become a bit more organised in terms of their fighting skills, in terms of how to use a weapon. And they said to us, look... We are, we are willing to go east. They know how terrible the fighting is in, in Donbass, but they're willing to do that. They're willing to go east um, if they are needed and if, if their forces need backup. And I think that, again, speaks to this question of morale. People don't want to fight, but they will do it. Um, and they're willing to do it and they're willing to step up. And that was the message that they gave us. Thank you so much, Nicola. Francis, I think you had a question. Yes, I just wanted to ask, um, you spoke a moment ago, uh, Nicola, about the discrepancy between, on, on this question of morale, between perhaps what you, what how it's being reported in, in the West and, and what you're seeing on the ground. I'm just wondering if there are other examples of where you think the... Uh, what what's being understood collectively in the West about what's going on in the conflict feels different to you actually being there. Are there any, any other big differences? Um, I, I think that's... That's the main discrepancy, really. I mean, it could be that some people are feeling more raw, but we just haven't met anyone like that. Uh, you know, from, and I, I don't, I mean, obviously, Ukraine has to, the officials have to try somehow to keep up public spirits, but I don't think it's just pure propaganda. You know, I, I think people genuinely do want to fight for their country and they do want to defend their homes because they, nobody really expected to come under such a vicious assault from Russia but so many people have stepped up to do something about it whether it's fighting on the front line or whether it's becoming involved in humanitarian aid Ilya who's, who is our local 
translator and, and um, helping us with the reporting, he, he was saying that, you know, in this war, everyone's lives now are defined by before and after the war and that everybody has a role somehow. And, you know, it, that could be providing for a, a soup kitchen or, or you know, um, helping refugees, um, internally displaced people to escape. And I think that I, I, I just haven't really seen or heard um, anyone on the ground who's been speaking about how low morale is. And your situation right now, you're, you're by the side of the road um, on the edge of Donbass. Uh, can you see signs of the war getting closer? I mean, can you, can you hear distant, the sound of distant explosions or, or is, that, is that over the next hill? We're, we're still quite far from the fighting at the moment. Uh, the the town that we went the town that, that we're going to was struck on the outskirts by a, a, a missile i think a few days ago but it's still relatively secure so we're not seeing or hearing any sounds of artillery but what has changed since we left Dnipro about 2 hours ago is that we're just seeing a lot more military on the roads we're seeing um, tanks, tanks go by on the backs of lorries. We're seeing supply trucks coming down, and we're seeing we're also seeing trucks full of soldiers and, and you know sitting in the back. And we've just got to feel for them, you know, where where they're going. It, it must be a kind of terrible feeling of, of apprehension as, as they're heading towards the front lines. And we've asked this question of quite a few of our correspondents who are out in Ukraine, but. How, how do the Ukrainians, the civilians and the military re- react to you as a, as a British journalist? Do, at the beginning of the war, we spoke to, 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 to Danny, who told us that they were extremely positive. Um, is that changing with, with the sort of ever so slow delivery of arms and things like that? Or is it still a broadly positive response? It's still a very positive response. People, anyone I speak to... Even, you know, we went to a, a memorial um, wall yesterday and there was a family there and, and then they heard that we were British and they started praising Boris Johnson. So everybody, everybody's very positive towards, towards the UK, especially they feel that the UK is the only country that stepped up. And, and they said, I, I interviewed another commander, battlefield commander, who said, well, yes, there are delays um, there are delays to weapons, but at least Britain has stepped up. At least Britain has offered something. And so we are very grateful for that. And there's a lot of gratitude towards the UK. There is still the reality that they need so much more. But I think that Ukraine is looking at other countries and saying, why aren't you doing it? Uh, they're, they're just very, very happy that the UK has stepped in somehow. I just wanted to, write, to, to ask a, a follow up on that specific point, which is how how are other countries being viewed um, in the context of this conflict now? I'm thinking particularly France and Germany, perhaps Poland, the Czech Republic. How have you registered a, a, a difference in attitudes? How much is the big international discussions taking place around concessions and things like that being registered on the ground? Well, there's a lot of resentment and frustration with big countries like France and Germany that they are not sending weapons that they could and also that they've, there was a lot of anger at, at uh, President Macron when he suggested some kind of compromise 
in over Donbass, and that was that went down very badly. People are just not willing to give up their lands because they said it's not going to it's not going to stop at Donbass. Russia will just keep pushing and pushing, and you have to stand up to a bully. So there's definitely a lot of frustration towards bigger European countries that are are not helping. And, and then on the other side, there there is a lot of gratitude towards, say, the, the Baltic countries who who understand Soviet aggression and who are giving a lot of uh, moral support in in any way that they can. And so I I, I think there's definitely there Ukrainians are are definitely very aware of who's giving them support and who is not and and what is taking place in international discussions and and yeah they, they're trying to influence the narrative as well and just keep putting out this message that we need weapons we need weapons we need artillery we need rockets we need anti-aircraft guns and they're all on message every official it's actually quite easy to to get access to people because they want to put out that narrative and they've been very good at doing that but it's just a question of who is listening. Just one more question from me, Nicola. Thank you so much for your time because we, we, we realise you do have to go. Um, you've been in, in Ukraine now for quite a few days. What would you say is your, your biggest takeaway for, for our listeners? I think my biggest takeaway, and I, I said this last week, is just how resilient people are and how they have adapted. Everyone has been forced to adapt to a situation that no human should face. Some people are obviously in more danger than others, but the whole, it's, it's a very traumatized country. People are, people are dying, people are losing loved ones. People, men, so many people have lost their homes. It's just, it's so shocking to see. Uh, in Irpin, for example, we saw a children's playground, which was untouched by artillery fire where little kids were just playing and it, it was, you know, colourful slides and swings. And it was next to burnt-out shell of what was once a modern apartment block and people have nowhere to go. Um, so everyone is being tested, but people are really powering through and they're finding a way to deal with major trauma. They're finding a way to not only deal with it, but also to discover their what what can their contribution be and how can they help each other how can they help their country how can they contribute to this fight against russia and 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 you know defending their homeland and and i think that's my biggest takeaway so far just how resilient people are and how much courage that they're showing well, Nicola, thank you very, very much for your time. Um, I would say to all of our listeners, uh, do follow Nicola. She's currently in Ukraine um, going into the Donbass reporting for The Telegraph. So she'll be writing lots of uh, fascinating and I'm sure incredibly moving stories. So thank you very much, Nicola. We um, appreciate you coming on and sharing and sharing what, what you've seen. Thanks for having me. So I'd like at this point to bring in uh, Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor. Um, Dom, you, you've been in Scandinavia, you've been in Norway past few days that's why you haven't been in the studio um can you tell us what you've been doing and what you've seen sure yeah hi david hi everyone and nicola if you're still on uh, great to hear from you please uh, please uh, stay safe um 
Yeah, so I'm in Norway now. Just uh, I'm I'm stood in Oslo Airport. So if you hear sort of noises in the background, I apologise for that. That's uh, that's an international airport for you. Um, I've been with the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. He, he's left now. He he left a little while ago. He's now in in Brussels for a NATO Defence Ministerial meeting. But uh, but Ben Wallace was here uh, to meet the other defence ministers from the JEF, the Joint Expeditionary Force. That's the ten nation force from kind of northern Europe, um, Iceland, UK, Netherlands, uh, Denmark, uh, Finland, Sweden, Norway, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Um, yeah, so the 10 nation Jeff force. And it was it was actually it, it was a one of a regular regular meeting, um, a series of meetings. The Jeff have been pretty good on supplying weapons. So it wasn't so much a um, well, it wasn't at all a finger-wagging exercise, um, and it was it was obviously to keep the, the pressure on there to sort of g, g everyone up. And what they did announce was there's going to be a, a fund set up, a, a, a Jeff fund for Ukraine, where where countries, if they don't have I mean, uh, weapons and ammunition, they can just send money into this big pot, and then it will be decided at, what, at these regular meetings what that will be spent on. And for, on the back of that, although the money didn't come from the Jeff fund because it was it's literally just been set up. But Britain's just announced that they have bought on the open market um, some 155mm self-propelled artillery guns that they're going to se- uh, send out to Ukraine. I haven't yet found out what uh, what equipments they are and which, which uh, what, what nature of, of 155 self-propelled artillery. Um, and I also don't know where the open market is. I don't know where you, where you go to look for these things or whether or not you ring around your allies and say, have you got any spare 109s or 777s and we'll buy them off you so not quite sure the mechanism not quite sure the numbers or the nature of that uh, weapon system but there's there's more artillery going um from um uh, from britain so defense secretary was here we were asking him all about the proposed visit or the expected visit into kiev by the leaders of france germany and italy and what message they'll be taking um and i asked him specifically i said are they going there with a message of unity to say that, that this is a show of european unity and support for Ukraine, or or are they going with a message of unity from the point of view of an argument saying it's time to to get uh, to, to to face up to negotiations and needed to cede land for for peace type thing? I mean that's not my view, as as regular listeners will know. But uh, I asked if Mr. Wallace thought that was what they would be, Mr. Macron, Schultz, and um, Draghi would be taking to to Kiev. He said he didn't know. No, yeah, yeah, he, there's no reason why he would know. I don't. I, th- I think. I've, I think that's correct. Um, but he said he hoped they were taking the the message of of European unity. Of course, hope is hope only gets you so far. Um, and we will see. He did make the point that um, that they have offered stuff. Um, France, in particular, the Caesar 155 self-propelled artillery piece is a very capable weapon system. There have been other bits and pieces, but there's obviously all the all the, the, the tensions that we are that we are aware of around around the issue of weapon supplies. Um, he was very pointed, though, in, in his. Uh, we were, it was asked sort of why, so why Ukraine matters? Why, why does this war matter? And he said, well, the ripples here. This is a quote. Ripples here will be felt in the Pacific. And he said, Ukraine matters because China is watching. And if um, so, I said, well, okay. So what what lesson would China take if if this is if there's a negotiated peace? And Putin remains in power um, with Russian forces holding about a fifth of Ukrainian territory. What what message would that send to or what lesson would China take from that? And Mr. Wallace said, quote, that the, that the West lacks resolve, unquote. He said, I'm not to, sorry, I'm going to continue the quote there. He said, I'm not going to go into speculation on Taiwan, but this is ultimately about the West's resolve to defend its values. That's it. 
This applies, therefore, to all sorts of people who have a different view of the world or indeed who are adversaries or indeed competitors. They will look and test that resolve and gauge how far they can push it, end of quote. So, you know, he sees it very much in terms of the here and now and European unity, but also he's, he's looking at the lessons that would be taken by autocracies around the world and in particular China and um, with a view to, to Taiwan. Um, I'll just take a little pause there, let you get a breath. Thank you, Dom. Um, and thank you again for, for calling in from Oslo. Um, Francis, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, this seems very in line with some of the things you've been saying over the past few weeks. <laughs> yes, well, I think we've all um, shared that view on the podcast. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating hearing out straight from uh, from Ben Wallace. I mean, do, did you get the sense, Dom, that that is something that is a uniquely British perspective on this? Or do you think that that is something that that there is a more unified agreement on amongst the NATO powers and in the West more broadly. Just, you know, I'm interested to get your perspective on that. I think I think things are moving so fast, there is no unified consensus at the moment. So, for example, what I mean by that is Finland and Sweden are almost certainly going to join NATO. We, we spoke, in fact, if we've got time on this, I can, or maybe tomorrow, let you know Ben Wallace's thoughts on Turkey. He's hoping to visit Turkey in the next few weeks and certainly before the NATO conference at the end of this month. Um, so he's hoping to, to go and, and help Turkey come to an arrangement about their, their issues with Sweden in particular, but Sweden and Finland joining NATO. So, so lots more to come there. But I think it's expected that they will join, in which case the 10 nations in Jeff will also be in NATO. So, so what does that mean? Well, that's very interesting because if you've got Jeff pride themselves, I mean, Ben Wallace keeps calling them the, the Northern European beer drinking club, um, those that will turn up on day one of any punch up. So you know, if you've got that in NATO, NATO's 30, 30 members, but you know, huge differences of opinion, as, you, as you'd hope and expect in a, uh, in a diverse groups such as that so it can sometimes be a little bit slow off the mark but if you've got if you've got these nations in the jeff and let's face it when if you look at the geography that that then turns the baltic sea the Barents sea to a certain degree but certainly the baltic sea into a sort of jeffy nato internal lake so very very hard for russia to to act there with impunity uh, very hard to resupply kaliningrad in the event of any hostilities and, and what it does do is it allows jeff almost to be the kind of vanguard of nato and if there were hostilities or or, or some kind of ratcheting up of tension jeff nations could operate in a in a an area of sort of useful ambiguity if you like so russia wouldn't know or any potential adversary but for shorthand i'll say russia wouldn't know if that's nato operating or jeff and therefore is there an article five element to this or are these uh, individual countries stepping up to the task at the at the time being so i think it's very very helpful very good that that all 10 jeff nations almost certainly going to be in nato it offers another another mechanism for for, for nato to act um and for and for those nations that, that will stand up for these values to to act. So I think this is it, it, things are moving fast. You know, Putin didn't want more NATO on his doorstep, but that's exactly what's happened through this through this stupid war. And he's also now looking looking down the barrel of of the Jeff nations having a having a a bigger role than might otherwise have been so if the, if it was just a, ni- a nice. I don't mean to be disparaging, but, you know, a nice club of, of exercising nations. It just adds another a quiver to the sort of um, the security architecture of the West. So I think it's too early to say. It would be very interesting to see what comes out of the NATO ministerial 
today and tomorrow and then in particular the big nato meeting at the end of the month which i'll be i'll be going to and hopefully doing this from there um so it'll be very interesting to see the, the messages that come out of that and the, the pledges of support not just in in equipment but also very importantly in training if if we're now taking the long-term view here and saying that this war is going to go on for at least months, maybe years, uh, eight years, obviously, since the 2014 invasion. So no guarantee this is going to be over in a few short months. Then we need to start thinking about long-term training, putting in those training pipelines and the money and the, and the, you know, the barracks, the physical accommodation for all this stuff. So, so there's a lot of other ways that nations that might not be able to supply the big heavy weapons can, can lean in here. I don't think there's a consensus view yet of of um of what should go where but there are enough sort of big beasts in the room trying to trying to pull along uh, the whole the whole group through a number of different mechanisms now i just have two very quick follow-ups on what questions on, on what you were saying dom i mean you've obviously been in close contact with ben wallace and the ministry of defense since the beginning of the conflict just wanted to ask what your sense what, what your sense was of the um, of the kind of morale within within Britain and within the Western powers generally, has there been a, a shift? Is there any sign of, of, of fatigue from from our perspective? And Nicola was talking about you know this concept of morale in in, uh, in Ukraine, but I just wanted to sense if, get a sense if you've if you've registered any any difference in 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 mood. Uh, and my second sort of question, just on what you were talking about um, China and Ben Wallace's remarks there, um, do you? Do you think that it's fair to say that NATO powers now see China as a sort of hostile entity? Because if so, that is a drastic shift in in the last sort of ten years or so. Well, the latter point first. No, I don't. I don't think they'll be talking anything like that language now. That really is to call to use phrases like hostile entity would be. I think would be quite a, um, a ramping up of the of the discourse. They're nowhere near that. Certainly. Um, competitors challengers there were occasional confrontations i mean australia had that recently with them um, with their aircraft being uh, or airspace uh, violations and the, and the way that china is operating near other other aircraft in international airspace um so occasional confrontations but no 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 one's talking in those terms yet if you look at the as we as i mentioned i think on monday the, the comments from general wei fungu at last weekend's Shangri-La Dialogue, the International Institute for Strategic Studies Security Forum in Singapore. He was very, very punchy in his language. But then they generally are, the, the missives we get from China are, are, are quite colourful, quite, um, uh, yeah, yeah use, use language that you might not get in, in the West. So, so you might see it coming from, from that side, but, uh, but not from, not from the, uh, from NATO yet. Um, Onto on the first point, I, I don't I don't see any dimming in the uh, in the resolve from MOD, and certainly not from Ben Wallace. I mean, he's he talks in terms of you know, being in the right place at the right time, as far as he's concerned. He knows, I think, every European defence minister uh, by first name. Um, he's got a great relationship with them all. I think haven't, haven't detected any signs. Of, um, of any poor relationships there. You can pick the phone up to any of them and, uh, and meets regularly through all the, d- the different mechanisms uh, that I've just been describing. So, no, I think he's, well, if you can enjoy this situation, I don't know if you can, but for a politician, it's, it's the challenge of a lifetime. And I think, I think he is feeling that he's, he's best placed to it. He doesn't want to 
change. I kept inviting him to make comment about leadership bid with Boris Johnson. He wasn't going anywhere, anywhere near it. And I do, I do actually believe him on that, on that front. Um, yeah, so there you go. That's, that's tomorrow's headline. <laughs> we get that completely wrong. Um, but, but no, I don't think he wants to go anywhere. I think he feels he's in the best place to contribute as he can. Um, and he's, 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 not, he's not resting, as I say, in the, in the next few, few weeks. We're expecting him to go off to, to Turkey to try and, try and help out on that front. So no, he's, he's views he's in the right place at the right time. Just one last one from me, uh, Don. We've talked a lot about the European powers and their perspectives on the war today. We haven't talked about America, and I'm conscious that we've got a lot of American listeners. How much is America at the forefront of this conversation? Well, that will come out in in NATO, I think. Um, you know, this has been the, the bits and pieces I've been concentrating on just recently. It's been, it's been a, a very much a European love-in. Um, but we will see, I think President Biden's attending tomorrow, I think. Um, but yeah, we'll, so we'll, we'll get more from the US uh, side uh, in the next few days. I mean, the US been they've been far and away the, the biggest suppliers of, of equipment and, and money. Um, political support you could take a you could take a view on, but but in terms of materiel, yeah, I mean they're they're far and away showing showing the lead there. Um, there have been a few, as we've discussed many times, a few a few gaffes, a few slips from from President Biden that, that you know, could do with a little bit of tightening up. Um, but I think they are they're, they're absolutely where where the world would want them. Maybe a little little bit further on, if possible, please. But uh, but no, there's no there's no split between between America and uh, another NATO members. Um, Dom, just one question from me before we move on to the final thoughts from both of you. I know you've been you've been in um, Oslo for for two days now. Um, so you might not have seen too much of the news that's, that, that's going on. For today's podcast, uh, we were going to do the updates separately at the beginning as we had Nikki calling in from, from Donbass, so we didn't, we didn't want to keep her waiting. But is there anything big from, the last, from today or from yesterday that you think is worth mentioning and worth for our, our listeners to pay attention to that's been happening in Ukraine? Well, maybe not so much in Ukraine, but I would keep an eye on, on the grain and the maritime axis. I think Turkey are coming around to the idea that they are absolutely central to that either unilaterally or bilaterally possibly bulgaria romania any other sort of black sea facing countries but in terms of, of doing something there i think they are they are central I, th- I get the impression they they sort of want to do something but they they like to be um they like to be seen to be critical to it as, as they are you know they rightly rightly so um so I think just yeah, keep an eye on on movements there around uh, around grain and the maritime maritime flank and Turkey's role in particular. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Dom, do you have any? We realise you have to catch your plane back to the office. So, um, any final thoughts from you? <laughs> no, I'm literally being hassled through security now. I'm afraid I'm going to have to go, but I'll speak tomorrow. <laughs> right. Very good. See you tomorrow. We look forward to whatever little trinkets you've, you've brought from brought to us from from Norway. Um, Francis Sternley, would you like the final word then? Yes, well, a really fascinating episode today. Hearing from from uh, from both Nicola and and Dom. Um, my only sort of final thought is, and I'm conscious you're going to be recording sort of more updates later, David. My only final thoughts are relating to um, some listeners will be aware that there's been a big announcement yesterday from uh, from Russia that has blacklisted 49 UK citizens, um, including defence officials and journalists. And, and some of those in- include several from, from The Telegraph. Um, I know Joseph Barnes, who's appeared on our podcast, is one of those who has been uh, been sanctioned. Our editor, Chris Evans, has also been sanctioned, as has Con Coughlin, who's one of our um, defence uh, writers. 
Um, and there are numerous others as well. Um, Catherine Veneer of The Guardian, T- Ted Verity of The Daily Mail, um, correspondents Sean Walker and Luke Harding of The Guardian, Sophie Ridge from Sky News, Kathy Newman of Channel 4 News. Um, so, and, and the Russian academic Mark Gerletti, who I also believe has, um, has done um, things for us, certainly on the comment pages, but I think he's also done interviews with us in the past. So I just wanted to comment on this and, and say that clearly um, uh, the, the, the work of, of, of journalism in, in Britain um, is a concern for the Russian state, and I think if anything, if anything, that just shows um, the importance of the work that um, that we're doing. And um, who knows, maybe there's a, a file on this podcast in the FSB, and uh, but uh, uh, we, we 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 don't know. But yes, uh, it, it, I just wanted to comment on it and say that you know we are. This is a, a war on many fronts: military, um, in terms of food, in terms of energy, in terms of cost of living. But it's also about freedom of information and the kind of world that we want to live in, where there is. Such a thing as, as free journalism and, and being able to have the, cor- the the kind of conversations, the challenging conversations that we've had not only today but in in, in in recent weeks. And so I just thought I would flag it as a final thought that whilst it's, it, it sort of pales in significance to the, all of the military developments this week, um, I just thought I would flag it and say that a lot of this stuff is going on in the background and, and I think it matters on a different plane. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.